It's a great honor to be invited to be here. Uh, very ple great pleasure to be down and visit this wonderful state. Um, I uh, was last here to speak, I think, in not last year, but several times ago in uh, August of 2005. You recall that's when Katrina hit, and uh, I came a couple of days after that, and everyone was asking me uh, whether we should uh, put a cap on the price of retail gasoline or not, and I'm thankful that that's not our problem uh, that we're dealing with right now. Uh, we've got a lot of other problems to deal with instead, however. Um, the beginning of a new calendar year, January, the calendar turns, and economists all over the country are asked to give talks about the outlook for the economy going forward. And uh, this year, uh, more than many others, it's, it's a somewhat uh, bleak uh, and uh, grim task to be asked to do. Um, and um, the, only, the only consolation really is that the economic times we're in are, are more uncertain, I think, it's fair to say, uh, than is typical. And so perhaps the, the marginal value of um, sitting down and thinking carefully about the outlook is a little greater than usual. My remarks today, I'll talk about the factors I see affecting the economy and monetary policy uh, in the period ahead. And as always, I have to state the disclaimer that uh, the views I express are my own and not necessarily those of other colleagues in the Federal Reserve System. The, so this all starts with the financial market turbulence uh, that we've been experiencing for about a year and a half now. And the cause of that is the tremendous uh, boom in home mortgages um, in, uh, in the housing boom that took place from 1995 to 2005, basically. Um, the mortgages made at the very end of that boom, from late 2005 through early 2007. Mortgages made then, at the peak of this boom, especially subprime and, and non-traditional mortgages, are experiencing much larger losses uh, than were anticipated by those who made the mortgages. Um, it, it's going to take years of research to really untangle quantitatively what of among several causes uh, really contributed to um, this fiasco that we've seen. Um, it's, um, it, it, there are a number of candidates, though, uh, that we can identify. And um, let me start with a little list here. It, it's important to recognize that um, this house, the, the housing mortgage um, problems are really a part of a, a decade-long housing boom. And accompanying that was this rise in subprime mortgage lending, and that led to this subsequent increase in mortgage losses. Um, one candidate that's overlooked is the fact that productivity growth increased around 1995, and productivity growth output per worker generally flows through to uh, workers' real incomes. And that um, picked up in 1995. Um, and there's some evidence that it slowed down a bit in 2005. And so I, I, I think that's going to be a candidate on economist research list. Another contributing factor that I've talked a lot about in, in speeches over the last several years is just the wave of technological innovation in the delivery of retail credit, um, the ability to amass a lot of information about consumers and collate it and uh, do statistical analysis to um, uh, uh, assess their creditworthiness, um, allowed borrowers to make much finer distinctions between borrowers than they had previously made. And this came first to credit cards, but this facilitated in the mortgage area as well, lower interest rates for some borrowers and extending credit to some borrowers who formerly were unable to, to get credit. Now, any industry undergoing a wave of 
technologically um, driven uh, uh, innovation. Example, the telecommunications industry in the late 1990s. Any industry like that is prone to overshooting and then retrenchment. Um, people think that it's going to go far, uh, and then they get a little overextended. So that could be part of the natural dynamics that, under, that we went through with subprime mortgage lending. Now, the regulatory and supervisory regime uh, surrounding U.S. housing finance, and this has grown up over the course of half a century, I think seem likely to have contributed a lot to the boom uh, and bust in housing and housing finance as well. I mean, here there's several individual factors that deserve mention. First, supervisory agencies, um, just like lenders and borrowers um, and investors, I think assigned a fairly low probability to the possibility of a, uh, a really large adverse housing demand shift like the one we've seen in the last three years, um, especially one spread over so many geographic regions. We just don't have that in our data uh, before uh, this episode, unless you go back to the 1930s. In addition, I think that private sector incentives to foresee and protect against shocks like that, big, massive downturns across the country, were to some extent dampened by the presence of, and here I'll use this term, the federal financial safety net. And by that I mean the POS insurance around commercial banking institutions and the availability of, of Federal Reserve credit uh, to loan to banks if they get into trouble, and more broadly to the prospect of official government support, uh, either to Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac or through other vehicles. I think many market participants probably inferred that a housing market shock that was large enough uh, to afflict a broad swath of the country and a broad swath of the financial industry uh, was likely to elicit um, official government support. And I think that was particularly true for institutions that are perceived as too big uh, to allow to, to fail. I think another causal suspect in the housing boom and bust uh, is the relatively low path that interest rates took earlier in this decade after the last recession, 2001-2003. So in 2003 and 2004, interest rates were lower than, um, than you might have thought uh, would be warranted based on economic conditions. Some economists have argued, uh, with the benefit of hindsight, of course, and that's an important qualification, that tighter monetary policy during that period would have led to better outcomes by uh, preventing inflation from ratcheting upward uh, in the period from 03 to 06, say, and um, as a byproduct, limiting the housing boom and mitigating the subsequent bust. And that strikes me as a plausible view, but again, uh, let me caution that um, significant research effort is going to be taken, um, needed in order to substantiate that hypothesis. All that, though, is prologue to the financial market turmoil that began in August of 2007. Um, and that's when the potential scale of the home mortgage problem became more evident uh, and more widely appreciated in financial markets. The turmoil intensified in mid-September of last year, and volatility has been very elevated since mid-September. Financial market participants, and this is how I like to think about this and explain it, have faced three major categories of uncertainty. One concerns just what are the aggregate amount of losses related to mortgages going to be. Um, a given vintage of mortgages takes about four or five years until you realize what the cumulative losses are going to be, what the cumulative loss rate is going to be. Is it going to be 5%, 10%, 15 or 20 and right now, in these problematic mortgages made in 2006, 2007, we're not far enough along to know where those curves are topping out 
and what the ultimate loss is on those mortgage pools. Uh, second, financial market participants have faced uncertainty about where those losses are going to pop up. Uh, mortgage risks were split up and subdivided and spread widely uh, throughout the financial system, both within the United States and abroad, uh, through securitization, where they're pooled together and securities are sold back by those pools, and through the years, use of these in, the insurance capabilities of these credit derivative contracts, where you can buy insurance on a given bond. Uh, from uh, um, an insurance provider. As a result, financial market participants are understandably apprehensive, uh, as a general matter, about whether a particular counterparty of theirs in financial markets uh, is going to have mortgage-related losses uh, that turn out to be large enough to erode their capital buffer and threaten the viability of the counterparty. And so anyone in the financial market who's known to have at least some potential exposure has trouble borrowing on interbank markets or has to pay a higher risk premium that was typical before August of 2007. So when people talk about rising credit spreads, that's, that's at the heart of the issue is the, the lack of trust between counterparties because they're not sure what mortgage losses are hiding in that counterparty's books. Third, market participants have also faced uncertainty about prospective public sector intervention. Policymakers have responded differently to the potential failure of various high-profile organizations in the last year. And that may have made it difficult for market participants to forecast for any given counterparty whether official support is going to be forthcoming to protect their position should that counterparty get into difficulty. And I think that probably has added volatility to financial markets, especially in the period uh, since uh, the late September when uh, in rapid succession, you had Lehman Brothers and then AIG handled in such different ways. So the striking pe feature of this whole episode has been the scale and extent of central bank lending. The extent to which central bank lending and other government financial support uh, has gone well beyond previously understood boundaries uh, that w formerly were thought to constrain such lending. And here I have in mind both the range of institutions that the lending and support's been extended to, and the type of, uh, the form of the, that intervention, uh, equity investments as opposed to strict loans, for example. Now, that intervention was driven by a well-meaning uh, desire to prevent damaging disruptions to financial markets, and thus the attempt has been to reduce the overall cost of the turmoil. Now, that objective is clearly understandable, but when we do that, when the central bank and the U.S. government intervenes like that to support financial institutions, never, it inevitably creates the expectation that similar support will be forthcoming uh, when market disruptions like this occur in the future. And those expectations can themselves be exceptionally costly because they can distort the incentives faced by and as a result the choices made by private sector participants in financial markets. These are called moral hazard effects, and they should be familiar to any businessman. And that can be detrimental to our broad public policy purpose of assuring the stability of the financial system. And it places a, a, a very high burden on supervisors, bank regulators and supervisors, to constrain the risk-taking that would otherwise be rampant uh, for institutions that were perceived to benefit from the prospect of official government support. In my view, the critical policy question of our time 
is where to establish boundaries around public sector support now that the old boundaries have been blown away. In doing so, I think the, the prime directive has to be that the extent of our supervisory reach, the extent of uh, the reach of the supervisory regime and regulatory regime that constrains risk-taking in the financial sector has to be matched to the, at the extent of access to federal financial uh, support. And that's in order to contain that moral hazard effect I was talking about before. Now, the dramatic recent expansion of Federal Reserve lending and government support more broadly has extended support, as I said, beyond existing um, supervisory reach. And if, it, if we don't do anything to correct it, um, this could be destabilizing in the long run. We could be in for more financial market turmoil. I take it as given there, therefore, that the scope of finan the financial safety net needs to be scaled back in one way or another. And I think that's the challenge for Congress and the administration going forward. Assessing the effects of the financial market turmoil on real economic growth is not as straightforward as it might seem. The popular notion is that credit market intervention uh, or disruptions like we've seen over the last year or so impede the financial sector's ability and willingness uh, to provide credit to households and businesses and thereby impedes growth. Uh, it constitutes an additional drag on growth. Now, there are widely observed correlations. Lending goes up when activity goes up, and lending goes down when activity goes down, that lend support to this theory. But causation can go in the other direction as well, and I think it's easy to see why. When overall economic activity is poised to contract, the outlook for household income and business revenues is affected adversely as well. Borrowers become less creditworthy, all else held constant. My reading of current economic conditions is that bank lending is constrained more now by the supply of creditworthy borrowers than it is by the supply of bank capital. And this may explain why recent programs aimed at reducing credit spreads in particular financial sectors seem to have, some of them at least, such limited effects. If credit market stress is a symptom rather than a cause of the economic slowdown, then intervention in particular credit markets might not be the most effective demand management tool. So uh, residential construction activity began declining in 2006, and it's affected not only credit markets, but it's had a significant effect on broader economic activity. For a time, the weakness was isolated in the housing market, uh, and the rest of the economy con continued to expand at a br brisk pace. But in late 2007, a little over a year ago, consumer spending began to slow. Household net worth was declining as home prices declined and as equity uh, prices have declined uh, more recently. Increases in energy prices in the first half of last year um, have uh, taken a substantial bite, uh, as was mentioned earlier, out of real incomes. Payroll employment peaked at the end of 2007 and has declined um, by about 2.5 million jobs since then. And as the labor market has weakened, uh, wage growth has tapered off as well. So employ uh, household income has, has uh, generally uh, slowed down over the last year and a half. Given this catalog of sort of adverse developments for uh, U.S. households, shouldn't be any surprise that consumer spending has been sluggish uh, since the beginning of last year and has fallen actually significantly since the middle of last year. When household spending slows, business investments usually not far behind. Business spending on equipment and software fell in each of the first three quarters of 2008. The near-term outlook is not favorable. Many firms are facing dimmer sales prospects, 
higher funding costs and more restrictive borrowing terms. Uh, other segment of the other segment of business investment is spending on new structures, um, non-residential construction. That's been flourishing for some time now. now. Over the three years leading up to the third quarter of 08, real non-residential fixed investment, that's a segment that includes things like office buildings, hotels, malls, and the like, grew at a 12 and a quarter percent annual rate. That category seems to have slowed significantly um, in the second half of last year, um, although not as rapidly and as much as I'd expected. Nonetheless, it seems clear that non-residential construction is going to decline over the course of this year. And only really the magnitude of the slowing remains uncertain. Last month, the National Bureau of Economic Research, the body that's in charge of these things, uh, confirmed what virtually all economists knew, uh, which is that the economy has entered into a recession, and it began in a 2000 of December 2007 when payroll employment peaked. For, for a time, the decline was mild. In fact, milder than the last two recessions, both of which were themselves mild by historic standards. Uh, but conditions began deteriorating much more rapidly in the second half, beginning around the second half of September. Since then, according to many reports, many households and firms are taking a wait-and-see approach. They seem to be reducing, wherever possible, non-essential outlays. And they seem to be responding to a general sense of uncertainty about the meaning of all these dramatic events for their own economic circumstances. Looking ahead, housing market conditions are going to be crucial for the outlook for the overall economy going forward. Housing market is by no means healthy right now. Inventories of unsold vacant homes are still large in many areas of the country, and as a result, home, average home prices are declining at a rapid pace in many areas of the country as well. Having said that, though, I find it hard to believe that new home construction has too much farther to fall, and that would imply that residential investment um, is soon going to exert uh, less of a drag on overall growth. Consumer spending is going to be another key determinant of the growth outlook. Uh, households tend to base their consumption plans on their income prospects, so improvement in consumer spending growth is likely to depend on a shift to a more optimistic optimistic assessment of those prospects, and it's too soon, really, to say when that's going to occur. All told, though, it strikes me as reasonable to expect the U.S. economy to regain positive momentum sometime in the later half of 2009, and that's for several reasons. First, monetary policy, which I'll talk a little bit more about in a minute, is now quite stimulative, and real interest rates, inflation-adjusted interest rates, are quite low. Second, the energy and commodity price shocks that dampened economic activity earlier last year have subsided already or are in the process of doing so. Uh, and third, as I said, the drag from declining residential investment seems likely to diminish over the course of this year. In fact, I would be surprised if we don't see a bottom in housing construction sometime in 2009. This is the third straight turn of the year, however, that I've forecast a bottom in the housing market in the next year. So one should take my forecast there with more than the usual grain of salt. While the downturn in real economic activity is going to pose uh, challenges for monetary policy in the year ahead, um, it's essential that we not let inflation drift from view. Since 2004, overall inflation has trended upward, and it's been higher than I would have liked to have seen over the last few years. Much of the acceleration that we saw in the first half of last year reflected energy prices, however, with oil prices down, uh, overall inflation has been subsiding fairly dramatically in recent months. There has been times in the past, however, uh, when inflation 
declined only temporarily uh, when activity slowed and reaccelerated when the recovery began. And while it may seem premature uh, right now to begin worrying about how inflation behaves after the recession is over, uh, we need to be sure that our policy as we go through this episode remains consistent with a strategy that does not allow inflation to ratchet up over the business cycle from one uh, trial to another. Uh, so that concludes my remarks. Uh, again, um, uh, this wasn't the best time in the world uh, in my career to be uh, giving remarks about the economic outlook, but uh, we've been through economic downturns before. Uh, we'll be we'll be through economic down we'll go through economic downturns again. Uh, we've gotten through them before, and I'm confident we'll get through this one as well. Thank you very much.